0: Let's pray together. Father, when we come to worship, we come uh, thankful that you are worthy of worship just because of your greatness, just because of your character, just because of of who you are. But Father, you are also worthy because of what you've done. And even as the kid's story uh, just said, Father, as you rode into Jerusalem, one last time to the praises of your people, you knew uh, how that week would end. You knew that it would end with your own execution, Father, and ultimately with the resurrection. Yet you went through it, you went through with it, because it was necessary for our redemption. So, Father, we are thankful for this redemption. We're thankful that we can come before you and find mercy and grace and love the very thing we most need because of our sin and rebellion. Father, be with us now as we look at your word. Uh, may you speak to our hearts in a way that no, that no one else or nothing else really can, Father. And help us to see your greatness, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Felix Mendelssohn was a composer, maybe you've heard of him before, but Felix, Felix, Henderson, or Felix, Felix Mendelssohn was a composer, a German composer, uh, that wrote symphonies in uh, the early to mid-1800s. Uh, he was considered to be a composer in the, the Romantic period of, of composition, I don't know a whole lot about music. But uh, he was well-known, wrote beautiful symphonies, and uh, his style is really encapsulated in one quote that he used to often say, and the quote is this, that the essence of beautiful is unity in variety. The essence of beautiful is unity in variety. You see, his goal was, when he wrote all those symphonies, is to take all the variety of all these instruments and all the chaos that they could probably produce and unite them, to bring them together in something that is really beautiful and sweet to hear. His passion was to bring unity out of variety and out of chaos. You know, you'd be hard-pressed in our world to find anybody that doesn't like or crave this thing that we call unity. You know, we we live in a world that's full of conflict, uh, both globally and personally. We deal with personal conflicts all the time, and we often wonder why we can't just all get along. Why can't everybody in this world get along? Why can't I get along with my friends or my wife or my kids or my siblings or all that sort of stuff? We all crave unity, but really have a hard time finding it. We live in a country that has. Two political systems, two main political systems that tend to really fight one another. And we wonder if we could ever come together in unity. Could we ever come together and really get along? So, most of us search for unity in all sorts of different places. We search for things that bring beauty out of the diversity that exists in our world. Often the diversity that exists in our world leads to nothing but divisions and arguments and fights. But we long for something to bring that diversity together, to bring that variety together. You see, the desire for unity is everywhere. We've all heard of all sorts of campaigns whose effort is to bring about unity, right? There's the one campaign that's, that's effort is to bring about unity surrounded uh, around the issue of, of dealing with AIDS. You've heard of the Coexist campaign that tries to bring unity all around uh, this idea of crossing uh, divisions and barriers that both religious and socioeconomic, that tend to divide us. There's campaigns everywhere in order to bring about unity, and all these campaigns are an effort to unite around something. Something or some idea that we hope can bring beauty out of the variety and the diversity of this world. So we all search for some sort of unity. But we also know the flip side of that. And that often unity can be, there can be bad unity. Some of the most successful people in in human history at fostering unity, some of the most beautiful quotes that are ever, ever written about unity are written by dictators who manage to unite their countries or unite a bunch of people group around a very evil idea or a very evil practice. So there's good unity and there's often bad unity that exists in our world too, and the church, the church itself, or, or those that have followed Christ throughout history, haven't always done a really great job at this thing called unity as well. There's all sorts of efforts for ecumenical movements that bring kind of religious groups together, and some do good and some do bad, and, but they're all at an effort to bring unity in the midst of all sorts of diversity. When we first moved into uh, this area to begin planting a church... We would, uh, we would run into people and they'd say, well, what, you do, what do you do? And I said, well, that's, that's kind of an interesting question. Let me tell you what I do. I'm actually uh, in this neighborhood to start a, a new church in this neighborhood, uh, a new expression of, of God and of God's community in this neighborhood. And they would say, well, what kind of church are you starting? And I said, well, we're, we're, we're starting a Presbyterian church in this area. And they would kind of look back at me funny and they'd say, well, isn't there already another Presbyterian church in in this area? And I would say, well, yeah, there's there's actually several other Presbyterian churches in this this area, but actually we're starting a a different kind of Presbyterian church. And then they'd kind of look back at me and they'd say, there's different kinds of Presbyterian churches that are out there? And I'd kind of have to hang my head and I'd say, well, actually there's, there's 12 main branches of Presbyterianism and about 20 to 25 smaller branches of Presbyterianism that exist in our world, and all of a sudden, the presenting idea that I'm having in this conversation with people is how even Presbyterians can't get along. We can't even unite around something that brings us all together, and the church hasn't done a great job of being an example to the world of this thing called unity, but we all firmly believe that unity is very, very important in all sorts of scenarios in life. I can remember when Beck and I started parenting Our our three kids, we realized how important unity was as parents. Because children, no matter how small they are, can find a way to exploit any sort of division that exists among parents. So, unity is very important, but it's also incredibly challenging. And I think what we'll find this morning as we look at our passage is that much of our unity and the strength of our unity has a lot to do with the foundation in which we build our unity on. Our psalm this morning talks about how good, how pleasant, and how beautiful this thing called unity can be, because it directs our gaze to something outside of us. It directs our gaze to God Himself, who's the ultimate true source of our unity. So there's three quick things I'd like to look at our passage that it tells us about unity this morning, and the first, the first thing it tells us may be the one that is the most obvious, and that is that unity, by necessity, negates isolation. Unity, by necessity, negates isolation. It says in verse 1, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. If you know me at all, you know one of my hands-down favorite movies that that were ever written was this really small movie uh, that didn't get a whole lot of attention, but it was a movie called About a Boy. I've told many of you about it. It's a great movie about uh, the main character who's played by Hugh Grant. And uh, Hugh Grant's character prides himself at the very beginning of the movie on what he calls island living. Island living is, is self-sufficient living. It's living in which uh, he doesn't need anybody else in his world... ...and nobody else needs him in his world. And he prides himself on this, this island living... ...and he talks, he waxes eloquently... ...about how great it is to have island living in isolation... ...with just himself and his stuff. But as you go throughout the movie... ...you see that there's this awkward little... ...later elementary school boy... ...that continues to intrude himself... ...into the life of the main character. He's not asked to come into his life... ...but he keeps intruding himself into his life inviting himself in when he's not welcome and just moving himself into the life of this main character. And as you see throughout the movie, the heart of the main character changes. And he begins to realize that his life is much more fuller because of the presence of this little boy that continues to intrude himself on his life. And he discovers at the very end of the movie that really island living is not really truly living. He realized that we are designed and that we are made as people to live in community. We are made to live in relationship with other people, to be in community with other people. But this is also true about this journey of faith that we often talk about in church. We continue to talk about it. So often I run into people that think their faith is only about themselves and God. They're people who have faith, but they just feel like they have no need for church or any sort of Christian community at all in their lives anymore. They're content with their faith being just about them and God. Maybe, maybe they're so dis- disillusioned with the disunity that exists so much in the church nowadays that they think it's okay for them to, just to have a vertical relationship between them and God, and that's all they need. But really really doing that, really living that way, has, you have to ignore massive parts of Scripture to do that. Eugene Peterson writes, we can no more be a Christian and have nothing to do with the church than we can be a person and not be in a family. God never makes private, secret salvation deals with people. You see, we were intended to live in community And we were designed to go through this faith journey that we call following Jesus. We were designed to go through this faith journey in relationship with other people. The second thing the psalmist shows us is that unity often happens to us on the journey. Unity often happens to us on the journey. If you've been with us the past couple weeks, you'll know that throughout the Lenten season, which we're about to conclude, we've been looking at these psalms, a group of psalms, That exist in the later part of the book of Psalms. And this group of Psalms, Psalm 120 to 134, are considered to be the Psalms of Ascent. They are traveling songs, or uh, songs for the road, that God's people would sing together as they traveled to Jerusalem. Uh, If you are an Old Testament believer, you would have to travel to Jerusalem uh, uh, three times throughout the year for religious festivals. And these were actually songs or hymns that were sung on the road by these travelers as they ascended up the hill into Jerusalem in order to worship God in these great feasts or these great festivals. And it's no surprise that this psalm is one of the last psalms that they would sing as they traveled uh, on their way to Jerusalem. It would be the last psalm that these weary pilgrims would sing just before they arrived in Jerusalem, and it talks all about this thing called unity. Because these pilgrims, they would come from all over. They would come from all over the land, from their different towns and their different neighborhoods, and they would meet one another on the road. And as they met one another on the road, they'd begin to sing these songs together in community, and God would begin to bring unity to these people as they traveled on the road together. They would share all sorts of experiences with one another and they would ultimately be drawn together into unity as they traveled to Jerusalem for this religious festival. In college, I would often go on road trips with friends. Uh, maybe if you're in college now or, or you were in college at one point, you did the very same thing and we'd go on these little adventures. None of them are really glamorous whatsoever, but we'd go on these little adventures and Funny little things would happen on the way and we'd come back and we'd start to retell the stories of things that would happen and those stories would kind of get bigger. they It's kind of like the fish that you catch that continues to get bigger every time you tell the story where these stories would continue to get bigger and we would find all sorts of unity as we retold these stories of shared experience that we had with one another and it would kind of bond us together, it would give us some sort of brotherhood because of this shared experience. But we also know it could go the opposite way. One year, I think I was a sophomore in college, we decided that we were going to drive straight from Pennsylvania to Florida for spring break. We weren't going to stop. We were going to drive straight, and uh, it was I was going to drive one car, and I had a friend who was going to drive another car, and he was from Florida. So he was the expert, and we were going to follow him all the way to Florida. You see, this was before GPSs, this before I could get on MapQuest and search all the directions. so I had to trust my friend that he would get me to Florida. Well, what I've quickly realized is that he really is concerned with the speed limit. In fact, he was so concerned with the speed limit that he drove five miles under the speed limit for the entire 22 hours that it took us to get to Florida from Pennsylvania. Now that was almost 15 years later, but as I tell you this story, even now I am irked at this guy for what he did. But ultimately we get to Florida and everything's really good. So sometimes those shared experiences bring great unity, but sometimes those shared experiences don't bring great unity. In fact, they bring division, sometimes they bring anger, sometimes they bring bitterness, But one of the things that the scriptures teach us is the destination matters. You see, when we got to Florida and we were sitting at the beach, we didn't really care so much about how long it took us to get there anymore because we had arrived at our destination and everything was wonderful. And what the scriptures tell us is that the destination on this journey of faith really matters. The basis, the reason, the foundation for our journey matters. And it leads us to a very simple thought in that the foundation that we build our faith on, the foundation that we build our life on, really and truly matters. Because the last thing that this psalm shows us is that true unity, the very thing that we so desperately desire, true unity is ultimately from above. True unity is ultimately from above. Verse 2 and verse 3 says this, it is like precious oil on the head, Running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down to the collar of his robes, it's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. See, the psalmist uses two very vivid imagery, images to describe how beautiful this unity is and where this unity comes from. The first image, it seems like a bizarre one in our culture nowadays. It's the image of uh, oil that is falling down on on Aaron's head and getting kind of caught in his beard and spilling all over. Well, if you go back into the Old Testament, you go to a place called Exodus 29, you get some explanation for this story. Aaron was considered to be the great high priest of ancient Israel. And as the great high priest, he would be recognized as the go-between between God and the people of Israel. He was the people's representative before God. And when that high priest was about to be anointed, they would pour oil from above onto this high priest's head, and it would spill down over his head and into his beard and all over his body. And it was a very powerful symbol of God's presence being poured over, not just the high priest, but poured over the people as a nation. It was a picture of the unity that comes from God who is above us. The second image speaks of this thing called the dew of Hermon. Uh, Mount Hermon was one of the the largest mountains that the Israelite people would know in their day. And because the mountain was so high, because it was so far above sea level, the dew that would be on the top of that mountain each morning would be particularly thick. And because the dew was so thick, it would lead to all sorts of uh, healthy vegetation uh, it, would be, it would provide great soil for them to cultivate crops and all that. But the dew in itself had this power. The dew that was descended from heaven would have this image of fruit and power. Another picture of something that descends from above that brings us something. You see, the psalmist is using that word descend or descends repeatedly. He's using it over and over again. And his point is that that this good and pleasant unity that he talks about, that he describes, is only found in God. That its ultimate source is in God, and it comes from above. This true unity comes from above, and ultimately we know in the gospel that its source is in Jesus, who descended from heaven ultimately in the gospel story to bring us life and life eternal. You see, Jesus came to share with us the gospel. He came to share the good news that is from above, the good news about how we can be reconciled and about he, how we can be made right before God. And this gospel, this message is so powerful that when we embrace it, when we really and truly live it out, it provides the most beautiful foundation for unity that we so deeply desire. You see, that unity that we so desperately want, that ability to kind of get along, that, that beautiful, good, and pleasant unity that's talked about in this psalm, it's not something that we can conjure up on a, in and of ourselves. It's not something we can just kind of pull our bootstraps up and say, yeah, I'm just going to get along with everybody, or we're going to have this beautiful sense of unity. Ultimately, it comes from above. In Genesis 11, it talks about how God's people tried to create unity in and of themselves without God. And it ended very tragically. But what the gospel tells us is that we we can't conjure up unity on our own. It comes from above. And ultimately, we see that when Jesus comes from above, becomes a man just like you and I. And when God's spirit comes as well, in Acts chapter 2, it says... He descends from on heaven to bring that beautiful and sweet unity that we most deeply desire. This is what God's people would be reminded of on the road as they traveled to Jerusalem. They would start out as strangers. They would travel on that road together, discovering a very sweet brotherhood through shared experience. But they would ultimately experience unity only as they met God in worship. It didn't matter where they were from. It didn't matter what sort of resume they had. It didn't matter what sort of differences they had. What mattered, ultimately, was the worship of God. And it is this gospel that has to be the foundation of our unity as people and, ultimately, as our unity as a community of faith. And you'll see all sorts of churches that talk about this idea of unity and will try to root it in all sorts of other things that are not the gospel. Some of the temptation is to, to, to root our, our unity in our denominational pride or to root our unity in some sort of theological pre- precision or, or some sort of worship style that could be uh, what we prefer and we try to find all these lesser things in order to, to build our unity, but ultimately all those things don't provide unity. All those things ultimately fail because only the true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ does this. You wonder how it does it. How does the gospel do this? How is the gospel so powerful that it can provide this unity? Well, it brings unity because the idea of self-sacrifice is at its core. The idea of self-sacrifice is at its core. I've had the privilege of, of marrying people in the past, and it's been a, uh, um, one of my favorite things to do. And uh, I've had an opportunity to marry both believers and, and, and non-believers and, and all sorts of folks. And we often meet for marital counseling before and uh, talk about uh, what it means to have a healthy marriage and all this sort of stuff. And uh, one of the first things I remind them is do not look to me as a good example of having a healthy marriage. I'm just trying to figure this out just as much as you are. But one of the things we always wind up talking about, whether they're believers or not, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the truth is the only foundation for a really and beautiful, healthy marriage is this very gospel. Because at the gospel, at its core, is this idea of self-sacrifice. And one of the most beautiful things you can see in marriage is when a couple mutually desires to sacrifice their own wants, their own needs for the sake of their partner. And when two couples are willing to do that, when they're really willing to to center their lives on this gospel of self-sacrifice, then marriage is beautiful. It's a beautiful picture of the unity that God gives us. It's a beautiful picture of the self-sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus himself would have, would have grown up traveling on this road to Jerusalem. He as a child would know these Psalms of Ascent as he traveled to Jerusalem year in and year out for all these, uh, for all these religious festivals. He would have memorized And he would have sung these psalms of ascent each year. But the scriptures tell us that towards the end of his life, he traveled to Jerusalem one last time at the very end. It says in Luke 9, 51, that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And when he arrived, we read as the story mentioned before, when he arrived at Jerusalem, many people celebrated his arrival. They put their coats down, they they waved palm branches, and they, they came together in this united voice of praise for Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. But just days later, just days later, those same voices would be raised in unison, demanding for his crucifixion. See, the gospel story tells us that he sacrificed himself so that you and I could have life so that you and I, who were enemies of God because of our sin, could be united with God, not as enemies, but as sons and daughters. And when we center our lives on this gospel, when we center our community of faith on this gospel, we experience a sweet unity that is a beautiful to experience as God's people, but also is beautiful to the watching world, a picture of what true gospel-centered unity is all about doesn't mean that our differences disappear. doesn't mean that our personalities disappear. It doesn't mean that our strengths and our, 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 our differences really fade away. It just simply means that we have given ourselves to something that is much bigger than us. Something that is so important that we are willing to sacrifice ourselves for it because He has sacrificed Himself for us. My prayer for you this this Easter season is that ultimately you would experience that personal unity between yourselves and God that can only come in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we as a church can experience that unity, not because we, we shirk away all our differences or our personalities, but because the gospel is so precious to us that we're willing to sacrifice who we are for the very sake of it, for the very sake of our community. May we rejoice in that gospel that finds us where we are and breathes life into our hearts.